The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 7 and verse 6, the sixth verse in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, in order to remind you of the context of that statement, let me read again from the first verse of this chapter. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then said Jesus unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. But I want in particular this evening to deal with the statement in this sixth verse. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. We come back, in other words, to a further consideration of this incident recorded here at the beginning of this seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, this tragic picture of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was misunderstood. And how eventually he was so misunderstood that they cried, shouting, away with him, crucify him. And he died upon a tree. What, of course, makes the tragedy so great and what heightens it so much at this point is that we are shown the opposition and the unbelief even in the case of his own brothers. It was bad enough as I was saying last week, that the Jews, the authorities of the Jews, the religious people, the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law should misunderstand him and not believe in him. But what could be more tragic than that those who thus were bound to him by blood relationship and had been brought up in the same home and house should, as the fifth verse tells us, be guilty of unbelief. Now, we last Sunday evening spent our time in analyzing some of the general manifestations of unbelief and some of the causes of unbelief. But now we continue with that matter this evening. 
Here, I say, is still the same picture of unbelief. Unbelief is always baffled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Baffled by him himself. Baffled by what he did. Baffled by what he didn't do. He's a problem, a puzzle, an enigma to the unbeliever. That's why he is an unbeliever. That was the trouble with these brothers of his. They failed at all those points. Now, the mistake, of course, with the unbeliever is that he tries to understand. That is the root cause of his error and of his trouble. We were indicating how these brothers of his, in their self-confidence, didn't hesitate to come to him, as you see, and criticized him, and indeed uh, to point out what they regarded as obvious inconsistencies in him. He seemed to be behaving in such a foolish and ridiculous manner. Why stay up there in Galilee when the crowds were to be found in Jerusalem? Galilee of the Gentiles. Why stay there when he ought to be there? with just a handful of poor people surrounding him, but all the nobility and the great people and the doctors of the law, they're all up in Jerusalem. Why does he do this sort of thing? They say the thing is almost ridiculous. On the one hand, you claim that uh, you have come as a great messenger and deliverer and you have got a message for the whole world. Well, they say, if that is really what you do claim, well, why do you, don't you go up to Jerusalem and do it? There is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. You're seeking to be known openly? Well then, if so, why not go to the place where you'll get the maximum publicity? Why not go up to, Jer to Jerusalem? Why stay here in Judea? Now there they are, you see, they're self-confident. They not only criticize him, they don't hesitate to give him advice and tell him what he ought to be doing. Now, that's typical of the whole attitude of the unbeliever as we saw it last Sunday night. He's the judge, you see, of the revelation. The judge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ought to do this, and he should be doing that, and he shouldn't be doing this other thing. That's his attitude, and that's the root cause of his trouble. He's trying to understand him. And he cannot understand him. His brothers thought they could understand him, but they couldn't. The word which comes, therefore, to the unbeliever from the New Testament is this. Give up trying to understand. And instead of that, begin to listen. These men did all the talking. It's only now that our Lord has given an opportunity of addressing them. He just stayed up in, in Galilee, as we are told. He didn't make any statement about it. He just stayed there. But his brethren, therefore, said unto him, and they bring it all out. But then, after they've finished, he begins to speak to them. And that's the thing that we are considering this evening. My dear friend, if you are not a Christian, it is probably because you've spent the whole of your time in talking about Christianity without knowing what it is. You've been arguing and debating and you say, this is what I say. Have you ever read the Bible? I mean by that right through from cover to cover. Do you really know the case for Christianity? We've all been like these brothers. We do all the talking. And we don't have the sense to stop and listen and let him speak. And then discover the truth. Now that is the first step in salvation always. 
Christian people in this congregation will confirm what I'm saying. The first thing that happens to us when we're on the road to salvation is that we are silenced. And we rarely begin to think and to listen to what is being said for the first time. Until then, we've simply been expressing our prejudices, defending our position. We don't want to hear. We are waiting for the speaker to finish in order that we can bring in our answer. We're not really listening at all. We're defending ourselves, putting up the camouflage. It's hopeless. It's fatal. The first step on the road to salvation is that we are silent and we begin to listen to what he has to say. And then if we do so, he will speak to us. And he will help us to understand the enigmas and to solve the problems as he did with his brothers on this occasion. He explains himself and his conduct to them. But even that, you see, in and of itself is not enough, but that is the first thing that we've got to do. We've got to listen to him and to his explanation. We've got to receive the understanding that he's giving us. For now, he begins to address them and to say to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, what does he mean? Well, let me try and divide it up like this. He starts, of course, by calling attention to himself. He always does that. That's the first thing. You notice how he puts it? My time, your time. Have you noticed how he goes on doing that? How he does it right through the pages of the four Gospels? He says, I go to my God and your God. You have heard that it has been said by them of old time, I say unto you, ye are from beneath, I am from above. These are his typical characteristic statements. He's already been doing that. We've had instances of it before in the third chapter of this gospel according to St. John. This is what he claims for himself. Art thou a master of Israel, he said to Nicodemus, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now that's his basic claim. He doesn't hesitate to set himself in a category entirely apart from the whole of mankind. You see, we've got to start with the person of Jesus Christ. And most of the trouble which people experience in their consideration of Christianity stems from this initial failure. They will persist in starting with the teaching. They don't start with the person. But we have to start with the person. So he gives his brethren this kind of shock. They've been talking to him easily and familiarly. Our brother. And he says, my time, your time. Here's a fundamental cleavage. In other words, we are standing face to face with this central and most vital fact of all that Jesus of Nazareth 
is the eternal Son of God. Therein lies the uniqueness of this Christian message, this Christian faith. This isn't the teaching amongst teachings. What is it? Well, this is a revelation from God, the God who spoke in times past through, to the fathers and through the prophets and in other ways and means has spoken in these last days unto us in his Son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The staggering, astonishing, amazing thing that the everlasting Son of God has been here in this world in the flesh, in the likeness of man, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Don't you agree with me, my friends, that it is because men and women are not staggered and arrested and silenced by that that they talk so much about Christianity without knowing what they're talking about? You read these Gospels. And you will find that the people who received salvation and came to rejoice in him are those who came to him seeing or feeling something about him which was unique and listened to him, sat at his feet. They were the people who were blessed. There's a supreme example of this for me to leave this point. Take a man like Saul of Tarsus, afterwards the Apostle Paul. Here was a man, you see, who said a great deal about Jesus of Nazareth and Christianity. He tells us in his bit of autobiography, I verily thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he had waxed eloquent about this, this new sect, this teacher, this nobody, this carpenter who'd never been trained as a Pharisee, who'd set himself up as an interpreter of the law, and who'd gathered a rabble of ignorant people round and about. He'd said tremendous things about this, and he'd expressed his opinion, and he'd quoted scripture, and the whole thing was plain and clear. He'd demolished Christianity. But the moment he saw him, he was silenced. And the great authority became a babe and cries out in his helplessness, What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? No longer the great pronouncements. No longer the brilliant arguments. He's as helpless as a child. Yes, our Lord had said that, hadn't he? Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, my dear friend, let me ask you this question as I leave this particular matter this evening. Have you realized that you're dealing here with the eternal Son of God come down in the flesh? In all your arguments and disputations about Christianity and what you think and say, have you confronted him? And can you explain him? Can you deal with him? Can you encompass him with your mind? My time, your time. He claims to be unique. And I'll sum it up by putting it like this. Either what he's saying is true, or else this is the greatest piece of sheer effrontery, not to say lunacy, that the world has ever known. Consider it. This ordinary man, this carpenter, this man who's been brought up in Nazareth, here he stands and says, my time, your time. This is either true, or else Christianity is the greatest nonsense that the world has ever heard. 
But it all, you see, impinges upon him. Do we start then by accepting his evaluation of himself? Do we realize, therefore, that as we look at these matters, we are treading on very holy ground, and we should come with due reverence and with godly fear and listen to what he's got to say? Listen, he seems to be saying to his brothers, listen to me, don't you realize who I am and what I am? Am I just one of you? Don't you see the difference? My time, your time. The person. But let me go on. The second thing is this. He reveals unto them that he has come into this world in order to carry out a plan. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come. What's he talking about? Well, what he's saying clearly and obviously on the surface is this, that none of his actions are haphazard. None of his actions, none of his conduct is accidental. It is all according to a plan. He said, all right, he says, you can go up to Jerusalem now. You can go at any moment you like, whenever you like. I can't. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, obviously, that he is working according to a plan and according to a program. Indeed, he is saying this to them, that he doesn't decide what he does. Now, as you read, especially in this gospel according to St. John, you will find that he makes a very great point of that, and he goes on repeating it. He says things like this. He says, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that sent me hath given me the words. Have you ever confronted that? It's not my own idea, he says. It isn't my own teaching. I have been given what I say to you. He says exactly the same about his works. The works that I do, I do not of myself, but the Father that sent me he doeth the works. Listen to him in his great high priestly prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of this gospel. Father, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now that's what he is saying. My time is not yet come. All that he says and all that he does and even the timing of what he does is not his own. It is the Father's. This is of the very essence of the Christian message, my friends. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to carry out God's plan. Everything he does is under the control of God. Do you realize that what we have recorded in the pages of these four Gospels, it is explicated in greater detail in the book of Acts and in the epistles, is this is a plan which God planned before the very foundation of the world with respect to this world. Before the world was ever made, before there was anything in it, before man was created, God had planned this great plan of sending his Son into the world. It's a scheme. It's a plan which is worked out in detail, and especially the time element has been determined. My time is not yet come. I am come, he says, to do the will of him that sent me. 
And his one concern is always to be carrying out this will, is to be carrying out this particular plan. There's a very dramatic incident, of course, which puts this before us with particular clarity, and that is the incident in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is our Lord. The end is coming. You see, the end of the plan is at hand. And he knows what's involved, what the next step is. And there you see him in the garden, alone, praying and sweating drops of blood onto the ground. What's he saying? This is it, Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There, that cup, the drinking of that cup is a part of the plan. It's the only thing he ever queried. But he did, he said, is it possible that this should pass by? Is there any other way whereby I can do this work? If it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He come, he had come to do his father's will. And he's carried it out in every detail. Yes, and the timing, I say, in particular, everything is planned. And he will do nothing at all until the proper time for it has actually arrived. Now then, it is this, I say, that gives us to the key, gives us the key to the understanding of his extraordinary behavior, which on the surface appears to us, as it did to his brothers, to be so utterly contradictory. Listen to this. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now then he justifies that and repeats it in this sixth verse. My time, he says, to go up to that feast is not yet come. And yet what I read in verse 10 is this. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. He doesn't go up. He explains why he doesn't go up, and then he goes up. And his brothers and others say, well, what is this? Is there any rhyme or reason in it? Isn't this blatant uh, contradiction? Let me give you another. Take this first verse again. These say that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Later on, this is what I read. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. His followers pleaded with him not to go. They said, that fox Herod desireth to kill thee. They said, don't go up there. You know perfectly well that if you go there, you'll be arrested. The Herod is plotting against you and the Pharisees and scribes of John. And yet he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He wouldn't go to Jerusalem because the Jews sought to kill him. He goes deliberately, sets his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and cannot be dissuaded from going. How do you reconcile these things? Well, there are many other illustrations and examples of the same thing. Do you remember what we are told in the second chapter of this gospel? He was at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, you remember, and suddenly they ran out of wine. And his mother said to the people present, go and ask him, he'll provide you with wine, go and ask him. And do you remember the answer he gave? He turned to his mother and he said this, Woman, what am I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And then in a few moments he turned the water into wine. How do you explain that sort of thing? 
What exactly does it mean? Let me give you another. You'll find it in the 11th chapter of this uh, gospel. The case of Lazarus, who was a great friend of our Lord. And Lazarus was taken ill. And his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. But listen, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Then listen. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still where he was. I ask you, is there any sense in it? He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha and Mary. They sent him an urgent message saying, Lazarus is ill, he's desperately ill. He's on the point of death. But the sixth verse says, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And then later he went up. Well, I could keep you at great length with these apparent contradictions, these so-called inconsinities. But there are many others. Listen to this. Here he is healing miracles, performing his healing miracles, and the crowd gathers, and they're listening intently and hanging upon his lips. And when he sees that, he deliberately goes away and begins to work in another city. Here is a man who's suddenly healed by him, and he tells the man, tell nobody of the thing that has happened to you. You say, what is this? Were not his brothers perfectly right? He seems to be attracting attention by his miracles. He seems to want to have a crowd and preach. And yet the moment he gets it, he walks away. Here he heals a man and tells him, don't tell anybody a word. Keep this as it were to yourself. And his brethren, you see, in the light of all this, they put this question to him. There is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself unto the world. Be consistent. Well, now then, our Lord, I say here, is answering these questions and showing that far from being any inconsistency, He is just working out according to the great plan of God. My time is not yet come. What's he mean? Well, what he means is this. If he had gone up with the crowd and the procession to Jerusalem, his coming would have been well known and advertised There would have been a demonstration because the people were beginning to become interested in him. And that undoubtedly would have led to his immediate arrest and he would immediately have been put to death. But the time of his death had not yet arrived. Later on he went up to Jerusalem in the most public manner possible. And you remember that the people came out And they took off their clothes and threw them on the road before him. And they cut down branches from the palm trees. And they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. His triumphal procession. His royal march into the city of Jerusalem. Yes, but it led immediately and directly to his death. As he knew it would. But you see what he's saying here is that the time has not yet come. 
My time is not yet come. There was a fixed time for his death. There were certain things that he had to do before that should happen. Oh yes, he's come to die. Yes, but he's come to die at a given point, at a given moment, not immediately. No, no, so he stays up in Judea. He goes up secretly in private and not openly. He tells these people not to broadcast the thing. The time hasn't come yet. Everything is fixed. Everything is decided. Everything is determined. And then, when it time, when the time came, he turned to his father and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, as thy son hath also glorified thee. What is the upshot of it all? Well, it's this. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross on Calvary's hill was not an accident. That wasn't a political martyr that was dying. No, no. This wasn't the result of the machinations of the people and the jealousy and bitterness. Of course, all that came into it, but that isn't the explanation of the death upon the cross. That is something that was determined in that eternal counsel and plan of God before the foundation of the world. These are the words that are used in the scriptures. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And the very moment was fixed and determined. Never think again of the death of the Son of God on Calvary's hill as an accident. Never think of that only in terms of the actions of men. He had come from heaven in order to accomplish that death. That was the thing you remember that Moses and Elias were talking to him about on the Mount of Transfiguration. They discussed with him the exodus that he should accomplish at Jerusalem. It was all known, and the exact time was known. My dear friend, how have you thought of the death of Christ until this evening? Have you said, ah, that was the greatest tragedy that the world has ever known? There was a man before his time. There was a political seer that was ahead of the generations. Oh, what a tragedy! Like the death of Socrates, the world wasn't good enough for him. Always the fate of a pioneer. Is that your way of thinking of it? If it is, you've never understood it. You're as blind as his own brethren were. My time is not yet come. I'm not going up now, he said, with you. I'm not making my triumphal procession now. That's got to come, but not yet. I know what I'm doing. I have come to die. Yes, but in my way and at the right time. Did you know, had you realized and believed, that the cross of Calvary and the death of the Son of God upon it was something that was planned and determined by the eternal God? In his great plan and scheme of redemption, before the foundation of the world, my time, I'm doing the Father's will. And it ended in his putting himself as a lamb at his disposal, that he might become the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. Let me hurry to my next point, which is this. This plan which he has come to carry out is a plan that is entirely different from what the world expects. It is something which the world cannot understand. 
He, the Son of God, has come into the world, I say, to carry out a plan determined before the foundation of the world. Yes, and it is a plan that is absolutely different from and contradictory of everything that men had ever thought or imagined. It is something that men cannot understand. Where do you find that, says someone? Listen. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, what's he mean by that? What's he mean by saying that their time is always ready? I have a feeling, you know, that this point is the most important point at this present hour in particular. I think the greatest confusion in the world tonight is the confusion about the Christian message. And it is at this point that the confusion is greatest of all. What do you mean, says someone? I mean this. Christianity is regarded as but a great moral and ethical teaching. It is regarded as something that is concerned primarily about the great big problems of the political and the social order. At least if you read the newspapers, I suggest to you that that's the impression you get. If you listen to the wireless and look at the television, that is the impression you're given of Christianity. That its great concern is to banish war, abolish bonds, and so on and so forth. That's Christianity. That's its business. That's its primary objective. So it is regarded as one of the great moral, ethical teachings. They may grant that it is the greatest, that it is the best, and that it is the highest. But after all, it is one in a series. And, of course, it is something that men can understand and something that men can appreciate. That is why you quite often read statements such as this which I read in a newspaper not so long ago. It said, it said the work of the church and of Christianity is rarely being done today by people who don't claim to be Christians at all. It said the real work of the Christian church in this matter of war and the bombs and so on is being done by people like Bertrand Russell and A.J.P. Taylor and J.B. Priestley and so on, all of whom are infidels and skeptics and deny the Christian faith and pour scorn upon it and spit upon it. But that is what is being said, that they are doing the work of Christianity. And there are those who in the name of Christianity align themselves with them. And who say it is because the church is not dealing with these things that the common people are not listening to the gospel. They say, why are your churches and chapels empty? It is because you're always preaching about some personal salvation and about some world to come. And men and women are interested in politics and in economics and in war and in bombs. If you'd only preach those things, the people would understand and they'd come and believe and your churches would be full and Christianity would be flourishing. Isn't that the argument? The Christian message, you see, is thought to be something that appeals to the natural man if it only really speaks to him in his own coin and currency, as it were. But this is how our Lord puts it, as he put it to his brethren on that occasion. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. What does he mean, I ask? Well, this is the answer to that. That was the very position which his brothers took. The position that is so popular today. 
Why don't you come and say it, they say. Then the people would realize and understand and they'd be with you. That's exactly the argument which his, brother, his brothers used. And what he says to them is this. My time is different from your time. Doesn't matter when you go out. Because whatever you may say, there's nothing new about it. Doesn't matter when you speak, the world will always receive it. Because the world will always agree with it. And the world will be always sympathetic to it. They wanted him to go up, you see, and declare himself as a king. And to head up a great army. And defeat the Roman tyranny. And set up a great kingdom. And Israel would be supreme over all. The people are waiting for it. Of course they are. But he says, that's your time, that isn't mine. Your time is always ready. Get up and say things like that and people will always listen. If the church talks about slums and if the, talk, the church talks about money and if the church talks about... The people will listen. They understand and they'll applaud. Of course they will. That sort of time is always ready. But he says, my time is not ready. Why not? Oh, well, because it's entirely different. Because it belongs to a different order and a different category. Because it is not in series with all that has gone before. Mine, yours. Because it is entirely new. Because there's never been anything like it before. Oh yes, the time of the other things is always ready. The world is familiar with them. And there it is. But not this. This is new. This is unexpected. This comes in from above. The world is not always ready for this. Indeed, he goes further and he says, the world doesn't understand it. You go up, he said to his brothers. Say what you like, do what you like. Everybody will understand you. Your time is always ready. You don't need any interpreter. But you know, he says, the world doesn't understand me and my message. It doesn't understand what I'm talking about. Did you hear Paul saying it in 1 Corinthians 2? The natural mind receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for it is foolishness unto them, neither can it, for it is spiritually discerned. Here was the Son of God in the world, and the princes of this world didn't know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it is nothing but sheer folly. My time is not come. Your time is always ready. Of course, there may be a new philosopher. He may have a new emphasis. Yes, but after all, he's like all the other philosophers. It's only a little bit of a difference in accent, a little bit of underlining here or there. It's not absolutely new, but his is. My time, your time, your time is always ready, but not mine. This is not only new and unexpected. This is not only something that the world cannot understand. The world doesn't like it. The world hates it. The world cannot hate you, but me it hated. It cuts across all our categories. It demolishes all our philosophies. It's absolutely strange. Something the world has never seen or heard of before. My time, your time, yours is always ready, not mine. 
Mine is something revolutionary and it has to come in God's way and in God's time. What's he talking about? Well, that is his way, you see, of defining his gospel. Emphasizing its utter absolute uniqueness, its difference from everything else. What is it? Is it a social scheme, a political scheme? Is it something about international conditions? Is it some protest that any sort of man can make, whether he's Christian or not? No. What is it then? What is this thing, this unique thing he's talking about? Well, I'll tell you. It's the incarnation. The message of Christianity, as I've been emphasizing at the beginning, is to say that when the times were fully come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. No, no, not some improved political or social or ethical scheme or system. No, no. But the coming into the world of the Son of God. Are people ready to listen to that? Of course not. That doesn't get reported in the newspapers, does it? But if I were to preach about Nyasaland tonight, or make a strong protest about this or that, the papers would be into Of course, the time for that is always ready, but not for this. This comes out of eternity, into time. Incarnation. The miracle of the incarnation. The virgin birth. The two natures in the one person. That's the thing. And then redemption. He hasn't come into the world to make protests. He's come into the world to save the world. Not to save it by improving it. No, no. To save it by taking its sins upon himself in his own holy body and bearing their punishment on the cross on Calvary's hill. Does the world understand it? It spits upon it. It ridicules it. It hates the blood of Christ. He knew what he was talking about. His time has not yet come. The time of the other things is always here. The world understands it. It's in series. But he has come to talk about and to bring redemption. He has come to make his soul an offering for many. He has come that God may lay upon him the iniquity of us all. He has come to be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Does the world understand why his own disciples couldn't understand it and stumbled at it? When he first announced it even to them, Peter stepped forward impulsively and said, This be far from thee, Lord, it shall not happen unto thee. And he rebuked him, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Incarnation, redemption, broken body, shed blood. That's the message. Something the world knows nothing about. It doesn't understand it. It doesn't see its relevance. It feels that it's remote and there's nothing to do with the urgent problems of the hour. But this is what he talks about. And he stays in Galilee and doesn't rush up to Jerusalem. What else? Regeneration. He hasn't come merely to teach men and to reform them and to improve them a little. He has come to give them a new birth, a new nature. His message is, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Your time is always ready. A man doesn't need to be born again to make protests against war and bombs and this and that. No, no. But a man must be born again before he can begin to appreciate this. Regeneration. And then he talks about his kingdom, the new kingdom. He's going to set up the church. Something spiritual and not material. Something belonging to the unseen, not the visible. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. And what he was saying in effect to his brothers, you see, was just this. He says, that's what I've come about. And that's why I'm not coming up now in public with you. You go up. You belong to the world and you think like it and they'll understand you. Say what you like. But you know the things that I've got to say, the world won't understand and it won't like them and it'll hate them. So I'm staying where I am until my time has come. I am not joining your procession, he told them. And he said further to them, you are not joining my profession. There are no atheists. There are no skeptics. There are no blasphemers in the procession of the Son of God. I do not march with the priestlies and the Bertrand Russells, etc. No, no. The message that I have is a message they don't like. They hate it. They abominate it. They ridicule it. Christianity doesn't combine with that kind of thing. There is between that kind of thing and Christianity the gulf that is separated by my time, your time. The plan that he has come to carry out and to fulfill is a plan that the world is ignorant of and doesn't understand and doesn't like. But thank God I'm ending on this point. Listen. He carried it out in spite of men's sins and misunderstanding and their devilish unbelief. He had come to carry out the plan. And he wasn't deflected from it and he could not be deflected from it. He came into the world to carry out God's plan and he did carry out God's plan. His mother didn't understand it. His brothers didn't understand it. His own nation of the Jews didn't understand it. But thank God, though the whole world didn't understand it, though the disciples all forsook him and fled, he went on and he carried it out alone. He trod the wine press alone. They all forsook him and fled. But thank God, he went on. The hour is coming, he said, and now is. When he shall all forsake me, and I shall be left alone. But though he was alone, he went on. Unbelief and even enmity and hatred made no difference to him and made no difference to the carrying out of the plan. He did it in spite of us. And this is the most marvelous thing of all. He was doing it and he was carrying it out. Not only in spite of this unbelief, but he was carrying it out in God's way for the sake of the very unbelievers who didn't believe it. 
Oh, that's the glory of this way of salvation. Did you notice Paul putting it there in that fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans? That's why I read it to you. It's the great commentary on the verse we are considering tonight. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet without strength, in due time, at the right moment, Christ died for us. Who did he die for? He died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. But listen even to this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Is there love comparable to this? Here he is, he's come into the world, what for? To carry God's plan out. What is God's plan? To save men. Who are the men he's come to save? His own brothers, who misunderstood him, who didn't believe in him, who argued with him, denounced him, tried to make him look ridiculous, offered him advice, told him what he was to do. And while they were showing their enmity and even others that were worse, he was coming and he was carrying out a plan that was designed to save them. Thank God I say for this. He saves us in spite of ourselves. He saves us in spite of our unbelief. It is he who has done it all. While we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were unbelievers, while we were enemies. There are people I am certain in this congregation tonight who are unbelievers until this moment, and yet the Son of God has died for you, you who deny him, you who criticize him, you who laugh at him, you who are at enmity with him. He died for you. He died for his enemies. He carried out the plan that men could not understand for the very men that couldn't understand. That is God's love. God commendeth his love toward us. Oh yes, sometimes you'll find a man who is prepared to die for another. Perhaps perchance for a righteous man someone would even dare to die. There are deeds of heroism, but oh, listen to this. God commendeth his love toward us. In that while the world was in sin and at enmity against him, he planned the way to save them. And the Son of God was dying on the cross for people who hated him, who reviled him, like Saul of Tarsus, who regarded him as a blasphemer. And that's the thing, you see, that gave Paul the shock of his life and the shock from which he never recovered. The Son of God, he said, who loved me and who gave himself for me. I was former a blasphemer and injurious and a persecutor. Even while I was doing that, he had died for me. Thank God. God's way of salvation is not dependent upon our understanding, upon our time. It is all in his own eternal will and counsel. It is all his own grace and love and compassion and kindness and glory. It is all his. And before we can understand this and receive it and be saved by it, 
We need to have a new understanding. We need the operation of the Holy Spirit upon us. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. You need the Spirit of God within you. And then, and then only you'll see it. And you'll see, what, a mass of contradictions? No, no. The most perfect, glorious, harmonious scheme that the world will ever know of. The perfect plan of God. All who believe in him and who are saved by him. Glory in this. In the plan of redemption. In the perfect ordering. In the timing. Above all in the death. In the cross of Christ I glory. Towering o'er the wrecks of time. When I survey the wondrous cross. The Jesus that stayed in Galilee because the Jews wanted to kill him and then went steadfastly when the hour had come. Oh, how I thank him for his obedience. He obeyed for me. He carried out God's plan to the smallest detail that I might be rescued and redeemed. Thank God for his time which is so different from our time. Thank God for God's gospel, God's way of salvation. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world, what for? To reform, to protest, to put an end to war and to make a better world. No, no. Thank God to save sinners of whom I am the chief, and so are you. My dear friend, have you listened to him? Have you listened to him as he speaks about himself? Have you hearkened to him as he tells you why he came into the world, why he behaved as he did, why he delayed, why he went, why he didn't, why he did? Have you sat at his feet? Have you looked at him? Have you heard him? And have you heard him saying that he has come into the world to introduce this grand redemption whereby you, though you're a rebel against God and a vile sinner that deserves nothing but hell, may be pardoned and forgiven reconciled to God, indeed become a child of God, and be enabled to look forward to the joys and the pleasures of everlasting and eternal bliss in his most holy presence. Amen.